from Luke 5, 17 to 26. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him in and lay him before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. And turn with me back to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Very similar, but you'll see some different details. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And lastly, in Matthew chapter 9, the first eight verses. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Father in heaven, I ask you to prepare the ears and the hearts of those gathered here today that they would be impressed with your power, with your mercy, and with your grace. Please give to me the ability to communicate the truth contained here to them. Not that I would use clever speech or persuasive words, but that you would be seen for who you are. 
the sovereign master of the universe, worthy of all glory and honor. Amen. Please be seated. Well, imagine the scene in a large uh, college auditorium where a physics teacher uh, assigns to one of his students the project of giving a lecture to the whole class, sort of a semester-end project. And the student chose to speak on uh, momentum and pendulums. So he spent a good half hour describing how they work, you know, loss of momentum, the fact that each time it swings back, it comes not quite as high until finally it ends up dead center. And so at the end of this 30-minute lecture, uh, the student said to the whole crowd, including uh, his professor, okay, do you all believe that each time the pendulum swings back, it swings up less high than it was previously? They all, thumbs up, they agreed. And he said, are you sure? And they agreed. So he said, okay, let's do a little demonstration. He asked the professor to volunteer to sit with his back against the wall and uh, a cable was from previous experiments already strung from the center of the ceiling and they attached a steel ball and the experiment was then to pull that steel ball within an inch of this professor's face and then release it, have it swing over and across and uh, to see how much uh, this uh, physics application was really gonna be believed. So the professor, albeit a bit nervously said, Okay, I can buy that. I know my physics. It's not going to go up any higher. It's not going to hit me. So they uh, set up the experiment. Professor sitting there back against the wall, ball up just a little bit from his face, and it releases. And imagine the scene as it slowly begins its arc across the room and slowly begins its arc back. Well, about halfway across the room on the way back, the professor frantically got out of the way. So he knew his physics, just like all the students knew their physics, but it wasn't quite enough for him to put his... Uh, faith in, his trust, as it were, when his nose uh, was on the line. And I think this is a good example of a lot of faith in the perhaps professing Christian world, that we, we know our facts, we know our theology, we know our physics of the Bible, as it were, but when it comes to really uh, where the rubber meets the road, uh, we shudder, we're a little nervous. And so it's that application, it's that really trusting in it day to day in trials, and uh, when we need something from God, that's where the rubber meets the road. And here in this account of the healing of the paralytic, we see a situation where true faith, where true belief, the rubber meets the road with good results. And uh, today as we look at this beautiful and awesome account from the earthly ministry of Jesus, I hope we're impressed with what true faith is, we're impressed with the danger of false faith, and we're impressed with how God works good things in the lives of the faithful. But let us begin by setting the stage uh, for uh, this story. Uh, it is a classic. It's in all three of uh, the Synoptic Gospels, as I just read for you. And so obviously it's an important story. It's told three times with uh, little changes, well, not changes, little additions uh, to round out the picture, but basically the same story. And unfortunately, as all too often the case with a familiar story, uh, familiar, familiarity can breed well, hopefully not contempt, but perhaps casualness. We forget the, the beauty, the power, the amazing things of this story when we've heard it a dozen times, when we've seen it uh, taught on TV programs, when we've seen it on flannel boards or in you know, church dramas or something like that. So I want us to take a fresh look again at it, see it again for the first time, as it were. So in setting the stage, we're here at what's called the uh, Galilean ministry phase of Jesus' earthly ministry. And uh, as you... Look back in the preceding chapters in each of the Gospels here of this account. Uh, the other things he's been doing is kind of roaming around the Galilee, uh, Sea of Galilee, or called Lake Gennesaret, uh, different places, region. He's been in Capernaum. He's out on the lake 
calling his disciples to a little fishing venture, and then he's back into Capernaum. And so uh, he's been doing a lot of different things. He's uh, impressed many people with his authority, the authority of his teaching. Uh, He's cast out demons. Uh, He's healed the sick. Uh, He's called four of his disciples. So clearly he's been busy. This isn't his first uh, step out onto the stage. Uh, These people have heard of him. Hence, when they know he's coming back, there's a massive crowd, too big to fit in the building. and also on this return trip, we have scribes and Pharisees coming out. And so he's, he's known. Uh, he's known enough for them all to travel some distance at least to come and hear him. And it's no wonder that uh, as he comes back to Capernaum, the sort of hub of his Galilean ministry, that uh, the people would gather. They've heard of these great things he's done. And it's no mystery that this man who is ill would come and try and get uh, his needs taken care of. So... Uh, It's also no wonder, and the verse that precedes uh, this section in uh, Luke, verse 16 says, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So that's how Jesus prepares himself for this whole interaction with the multitude at this house in Capernaum, is in prayer. And we know it's not the only time he did that, but it's certainly a great example for us in preparing to engage in ministry. If you have New King James, you'll see the word often there is in italics, and so it's added, but it's carried in the sense of the verbs there, which means a continuous ongoing action. So it's not the only time, it's not the first time, certainly not the last time that Jesus withdrew in prayer. So it's an ongoing habit. It's the way he is about things, being in fellowship with his Father. And it's all the more important as he's here on frontline ministry, dealing with uh, demons, dealing with skeptics, and dealing with mobs of people that he engages in prayer. So that sets the stage. And then we move forward into verse 17, uh, where our focus begins. And the text there reads, it happened on a certain day, or as other translations read, on one of those days. So Luke doesn't tell us exactly when. It wasn't Tuesday. It wasn't the day following a particular event. It was just one day mixed in with that whole period of time when he was in and around Capernaum. But it does, uh, by looking at the Mark account fill in the exact location that it was in Capernaum. So again, we know he's been there before. Uh, People know of him. Perhaps this house that he's invited to that Mark tells us about, invited into a house in in Matthew as well, is uh, somebody who had been convinced on his earlier trips. We don't know that detail, but he's known. He's invited into a house. It's in Capernaum. This is known territory. And uh, the scene that's about to happen is quite exceptional, but they do know of him. Um, and we have to wonder, uh, why is it that a massive crowd would come out? Uh, you know, what are they coming to see and to hear? And we'll, that question is answered shortly here. They are all coming to be healed and, uh, or to ask difficult questions. Uh, but they do come to see what Jesus is about, and they're going to learn a lot about what Jesus is about. And it's not merely physical healing. It's not merely about uh, stifling the mouths of the skeptics, but it's about something more profound, and that is faith and true spiritual healing. And it's about the power of God. And that's where we begin that second part of verse 17. It's a a powerful phrase where it says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And really the first step, I think, if we're looking to understand what Jesus' ministry was about, is the power of God. He goes in verse 16 uh, into personal prayer to have fellowship with God, to have that power. We know as believers that it's the power of God in us. Uh, The same exact power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that sanctifies us. It's the power that fills our ministry if it's to be productive. So we must not overlook that crucial step 
that faith comes by the power of God. We can't say a, a magic prayer. We can't do a special you know, musical feeling to provoke true faith. That faith, true faith, only comes from the power of God. But next, notice in uh, verse 18, uh, the difference in, in posture, the, the way that people approach him. Uh, there's sort of three different members of the crowd here, as I see it. There's the scribes and Pharisees, who is described as sitting by, and I think that word that the scripture connotes, they're just kind of casually, maybe a little skeptically, aloofly, on-looking. They're not real eager, but they certainly want to see what's happening. So they're sitting by. That's the first part of the crowd. Then there is the multitude, as it's described, that's pressing in and blocking the door. Uh, these houses weren't large, so it's not like it's a crowd of 5,000 trying to squeeze in a little house, but it's enough to fill it, it's enough to overflow out the door, and enough to be uh, pressing in from the outside. So that's the second part of the crowd. And the third part of the crowd is this man and his four friends. And we're going to see three different reactions through this story based on the faith of these people as we go through. But one other little detail about the faith of this man and his friends as I put on your outline there, faith that is humble. He's a paralytic. He realizes his need for help. I think that's one of the, the great blessings of being physically ill is we recognize that we need some help. When we're in good physical shape, we don't think we need much help. It's when things go wrong that we realize we need help. But it's one of the great tragedies of spiritual uh, sickness, of spiritual infirmity, that we often don't recognize it. The hard heart thinks things are just going swell. I don't need God. Um, that whole business is for people who are ill. And indeed, Jesus did say, uh, I come to call those who are sick, not the healthy. Uh, but we have to realize that all of us are sick. We all need help. And certainly this paralytic, as an ill man, does need help. We don't know whether he was paralyzed from birth or whether he was in a, you know, an ox cart accident the day before or that morning. But whatever the situation, whether it's been a day, an hour, or 20 years, uh, he knows he needs help, and he is humble enough to admit it. Uh, moving to verse 19, at the same time that he's humble enough to admit that he needs help, he is and his friends are persistent enough to press for help. And how many of us, if we were trying to get into uh, you know, a concert, and we arrived and it's sold out, and we're standing, we can't look over the crowd to look in, we just go away, think, well, I'll just catch the show the next time, or worse yet, would go away bitter that we didn't get what we wanted. But uh, that's not the situation here. These guys take things to the next level, and they are persistent. Um, there's no stopping them. They're going to find a way up onto that roof, and they are going to find their way in. And Luke describes uh, some aspects of this tenacity. Uh, in, and just as an aside, we'll talk here about the roof. He says that they let him down through the tiling of the roof. And uh, I don't know if any of you ever tried to uh, dig through a modern you know, ceramic tiled roof. Here they're mostly asphalt with some pretty burly plywood underneath. You'd need more than just your fingernails to get through it. And this is certainly the case back then. Um, but the very fact that Luke mentions the tiling here has, has drawn some controversy over the years. It used to be in the past decades that uh, skeptics and even some Bible scholars would say, hey, look, see, this is an example of Luke's mistake. Uh, tiled roofs, that's not the way the Judeans did it. That's not what the roofs would have been like in Galilee in Jesus' day. This is obviously one of those, another mistake in the Bible because it was uh, Gentile communities that had tiled roofs. That was the style of architecture they adopted. So they say, look, here's a mistake. Or, or maybe Luke is just speaking anachronistically, and this is actually written 100 years later when indeed there were lots of tiled roofs in this region. But um, as is the case with many of those details that skeptics bring up, uh, more recent archaeological evidence has shown that, in fact, there was 
apparently enough Gentile architectural influence that there were many uh, uh, tiled roofs, and they've discovered them dating back to the early to mid-first century. So we don't need to be discouraged by this detail about tile roofs. In fact, it's quite likely that's actually what uh, the men encountered there in the house that Jesus was in. So a good point there to remind us of the truth of Scripture. But back to the point about the tiles and the tenacity required. Um, they would have had to find a way to climb up there, maybe on a ladder to a second story, and then crossed over. But uh, also think that they didn't have jackhammers and power drills. Uh, they would have been digging through this. You know, imagine taking the guy's cane and trying to pound through it or ripping, ripping up the layers. Uh, this would have been a fairly difficult thing to do. I mean, they had four people, so it's good to travel with friends. But it would not have been just a casual, oh, let's pick away the straw, we're through the thatched roof, and we're in. It would have been a lot of work and uh, indeed is evidence of the great tenacity that they have uh, realizing their need and carrying that through to the next level to get what they need. They're not going to go away without it. They're going to find a way uh, in there to beat the crowd. Uh, Moving then to verse 20, we see uh, that that Jesus sees their faith. It's visible. Now, if he had and his friends had just prayed, certainly Jesus could see uh, into their hearts. He would hear their prayers. He would know the desires of their hearts. But there is an outward action here, obviously, that is visible to Jesus. He sees their faith. He sees their faith by the evidence of their faith, by their persistence in going up to the roof and digging through the roof and lowering him down. He saw their actions that came from that earnest faith. And uh, notice that he saw beyond that outward infirmity. Certainly he would have seen the physical need, but he saw deeper than that even to the spiritual need that the man had. And he then deals with both, as we see here. Uh, in verse 21, uh, we see the first reaction to uh, Jesus' bold statement when he says that your sins are forgiven. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees charge him with blasphemy. They're not the type to be uh, critical openly. They're not you know, writing a book, one of those uh, skeptic books that we see out on the press these days, but they're thinking it in their thoughts. Uh, they do it quietly in their thoughts. And uh, one thing we need to realize here is they're, they're actually correct in their theology, but they make a uh, mistake in how it's applied. They're perfectly accurate that, um, as it says here, uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Uh, but as with so many cases, uh, they make a mistake in thinking that that doesn't apply to Jesus. Um, and this is one of those classic texts we can use to uh, bring to people who don't believe in the deity of Christ. Their, their math is correct except for the final summation. If Jesus uh, forgives sins and only God for, can, can forgive sins, either he's a liar or he actually is God. And unfortunately, they chose the first option that he's a liar. So we must always see that there can be some uh, correctness, at least in the early stages of a skeptic's logic, but it's in those latter stages where they take it to the wrong conclusion. This is the same situation as in James uh, 2.19, where it speaks of the faith of the demons, that they believe in God, that God is one, and yet they shudder. Uh, We'll discuss this a little bit later. But uh, they're right that God is one, but they make the wrong conclusion in not bowing down to him. So just because you have some of the right basic facts doesn't mean you get all the way there. So they say the devil is in the details. In this case, the devil is in the details of application. Uh, Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. It is the prerogative of God alone to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. Well, in verse 22 to 24, we see his answer to this skeptical uh, uh, retort of theirs. Um, Jesus first dealt uh, with the deeper need of sin, but we might ask, why does he even bother to deal with the physical healing? I mean, if you would just realize that you were healed of your sins, would it really matter that much that you were still paralyzed? 
um, you know, hopefully it wouldn't. We'd be, we'd be grateful for that eternal work that he had done in us. But uh, Jesus goes a step further and deals with the outward uh, habit of man. And so well, why does he do that? But he gives us that answer in verse 24. And this is the same phrase that's in all three of the synoptic gospels. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So the reason he's going to, in the next step, heal this man physically is so that you know he's telling the truth in what he already did. And the fact of the matter is these observers can't know that he actually forgave sins. They can't see into this man's heart to see it's washed clean. They can't see his sins being covered by the blood of Christ. So in a certain sense, they're somewhat justified in being skeptical. Sort of prove it. I can't see that his sins are forgiven. Um, So in order to prove the truthfulness of that claim, he can do something that is very visible. Imagine if he said, man, rise up and walk, and he, he wasn't healed. They'd have double reason to be skeptical of his first claim. So by doing the lesser miracle of healing him physically, that lends all the more proof to the greater miracle of forgiving his sins. So that's indeed what he goes on and does. He forgives uh, his sins and then heals him bodily. So the, first, the man's faith first gained him this eternal reward of forgiveness, and then it gains him all the more important issue. Um, I'm sorry. First uh, gained him the, all the critical issue of forgiving sins and then the lesser but still valid uh, issue of relief from temporal suffering. And we can't always expect that to happen. Uh, you know, many faith healers say that if you've got real faith, you'll always be healed. But where are we left then in the case of Paul, who prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, and it wasn't. Uh, it's not that his prayer wasn't answered. It was just answered a little differently than he might have hoped for at first. It was answered by having uh, joy and contentment in the midst of that suffering. So whether it's full healing or joy in the midst of that continued suffering, we know that true faith has some outward result. It's either going to be healing or it's going to be joy and contentment in the fact that you still have it. But either way, as my heading reads there, faith affects our outward being. There's going to be some outward showing of how that faith is uh, working according to God. Uh, Not to get sidetracked, but I I think I'd be remiss if I didn't note here, of course, the fact that Jesus knew these skeptics' thoughts. They didn't have to voice it. They didn't have to write that book. They didn't have to write a little placard and nail it to the wall saying, this man's a blasphemer. Did you hear what he just claimed to do? Jesus can read their thoughts. Another important uh, evidence for proving his deity. Uh, And this is a great encouragement as well as a great warning. So many truths in Scripture go both ways. It's an encouragement to us because we know that God, the Son, can know our desires, can know our hurts, and therefore answer them according to his wisdom and his good timing. But it's also a great warning for those who are trying to cover things up, that he can see that deeper level. You know, if we're not confessing it, if we think, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the introduction, that we're painting things over nice on the outside, but there's still a deeper issue that we're not ready to acknowledge. We're trying to cover it up, that Jesus sees those and that we can't play two-faced because he does uh, hear their thoughts. He sees all of our hearts. And indeed, Jesus has seen into the hearts of the skeptic. He's exposed their unbelief while he's seen into the heart of the paralytic and seen their true belief. And in verse 25, we see how true faith responds to this healing done by the true Lord. And it responds in obedience. And a few uh, facets of this obedience. First, his obedience is immediate. We see in verse 25, immediately he rose up. He didn't delay. He didn't think about it for a little while. He did it immediately. Uh, The next important point is that Jesus told him three things to do. And he does all three. 
Uh, he didn't do one now, and you know, I'll get to the others later after I take care of some personal issues. But he immediately rose up, took what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house. So all three things, he's thorough and immediate in his obedience. But note also, he does a fourth thing that he was not explicitly told to do. He does it spontaneously, and that is he glorifies God. He went away glorifying God. And it could be, uh, I think there's two ways we could look at this. It could be that he glorifies God merely by obeying Jesus uh, immediately and thoroughly, in which case it's a great lesson to learn that delayed and haphazard obedience is not glorifying to God. So the manner in which he obeyed is glorifying to God. But also it could be, and this is certainly likely, and um, there's no quotes around he said glorifying God, to know that he said it audibly. But no doubt, as this man got up, he's saying, guess what just happened to me? Praise God, I've been paralyzed for however long, and now I'm running home. And that would have been an audible way in which he was glorifying God. So I take it to be both ways, both in the manner in which he obeyed and this additional things that he likely said as he obeyed, both of them were glorifying to God. Well, moving on to verse uh, 26, we have to imagine the scene as this man uh, who perhaps is well-known to the whole crowd. You know, these are small towns, even though there's a massive crowd. Everybody knew each other, likely. Uh, as he trots off with his bedroll, the crowd would have been justifiably stunned. Um, Luke says in verse 26 that they were amazed and filled with fear, while Matthew writes that they marveled. Um, and then, just like the paralytic himself, it says they glorified God. Uh, it's possible, so who is this all in verse um, 26? And they were all amazed. I think it's possible that the all includes those who had been skeptical earlier on, the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, the all being everybody watching was amazed and uh, had fear saying uh, that phrase that follows. Uh, but I think much more likely is the fact that the scribes and Pharisees are not included in this. And that's because the next section here if your Bible has subheadings, and it's the same in all three synoptic Gospels, the next section is Matthew, the tax collector, being called. And in that scene, which is sort of just down the road, we have another uh, situation where the Pharisees or scribes are asking another theologically accurate but skeptical question. So the mere fact that in the next scene we still have that uh, skeptical question coming up leads me to conclude that the scribes and the Pharisees are not to be included among the all. But back to those who were amazed and did marvel, uh, whom uh, are called the multitude in Matthew 9.8. Uh, so it's not just the one man or not just the three friends that are left or four friends that are left behind when the paralytic leaves. Uh, it is a multitude of people. Um, Mark says that they then said, we never saw anything like this. Whereas Luke says, uh, we have seen strange things today. And this word there uh, used is strange. Uh, the root is our word for paradox. You can imagine that's a justifiable thing to be sitting there going, wait a second, I just saw this guy paralyzed and he just walked away. Uh, that doesn't add up in my head. And indeed, that would be a paradox that people can't believe their eyes. They think it's crazy. And uh, this is a clue I have to think, I don't think the multitude uh, believed in the same way that the paralytic did. They, they didn't get it. Um, as 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, to the loss of the world, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness because they're spiritually discerned. So this is just a crazy thing that ha happened. Um, it's strange. Uh, they never seen anything like it. So I think it's because it's spiritually discerned. 
and they can't discern it because they don't have the spirit. Um, so that leads to my conclusion that while the crowd was definitely impressed, it got them thinking twice, uh, that they were not convinced. They were not believers. So this paralytic man is saved and physically healed, but those without the spirit uh, can't make sense of it. Um, Matthew says, though, that the multitude marveled and glorified God for giving such power to men. And that's why I think that even though they glorified God, and indeed many uh, glorifying words can come from the lips of the unbelieving, he'll use the wrath of men to praise him. Uh, but yet, when it says there that uh, they, gave, they were praising God for giving such power to men, I think they misunderstood what Jesus was about. They thought he was just a man and that God had given them this super ability. He was just a, a really special prophet that had come to do some healing work. So they totally missed what was at work here. Um, they missed the point that God had come to dwell with his people, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. So while oftentimes salvation of one individual leads to a cascading effect in whole families and whole communities, uh, others around him are saved too. Other times it's only a needle in the haystack that gets saved. Um, I know uh, when I was saved, you know, the, the college group I was hanging out with, and then I, this, I worked at an organic farm the next summer. I mean, there were pagans all around me. And I was thinking, why me? Why not all these friends of mine who had many of the similar thoughts and the same rationales to what we were doing previously? But often is the case that God calls individuals. So uh, just because your coworkers think you're a nut and just because uh, the, the public out there thinks that uh, Christianity is a delusion, the God delusion, as one author puts it, doesn't mean that our faith isn't true. Thankfully, majority doesn't rule, and theology is not a democracy. And so we don't need to be discouraged by the fact that we're sort of going against the grain of uh, popular thought. Uh, we have to be prepared to be one among many in what appears to be a battle where we're outnumbered. But that doesn't call into question the truth, the veracity of what we really believe, and that is the truth of God. So even if the paralytic was the only man healed that day, it's still a beautiful day. You don't need a multitude to be saved in order for God to be greatly glorified and for his kingdom to be built. Well, having then taken this verse-by-verse -verse look at what true faith is manifested in the life of the paralytic, I want to run through some brief examples of what faith is not because there are false faiths out there. We're warned about it at various places in Scripture and we'd be remiss if we didn't take a look at these um, partly so we can really be taking a close look at ourselves, make sure that we're not <coughs> deluding ourselves, uh, but also to be, uh, be sure that we're preaching the right faith out to the world. We won't, don't want to be starting people on a wrong path where they're taking satisfaction and contentment in the wrong thing. So we'll begin with um, the example of John 2.23. And this is one of those situations where Jesus performed uh, special signs and he impressed many people. And on many of these occasions, Scripture says that these people believed. And it's the exact same word uh, used in other places for true faith, believed, pistuo. And this example here, John 2.23, reads, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So no doubt, a definite impression had been made. Uh, but the power of Jesus in these signs and the purpose of Jesus are not one and the same. We can't uh, totally... He didn't come just to do miracles. The miracles were a sign. And signs point to other things. And if you're driving down the street and you see a stop sign, it's not just about the stop sign. It's about what that sign points to. It points to the intersection that you're not supposed to go through without coming to a full and complete stop. Uh, we speak of the sacraments being signs, baptism and the Lord's table. They're signs because they point to something else other than themselves, namely uh, invisible grace. So the bread and wine aren't grace themselves, 
uh, they're a sign that points to the real thing, grace. Otherwise, you, know, you can get more grace by taking two crackers instead of one. But they're a sign. They point to the thing they signify. They're not one and the same. There really is grace present there, just like a stop sign really means that a stop is coming, but it's not about the stop sign. It's not about the bread and the wine. It's about the grace. It's about the sign. Uh, it's about the thing signified by that sign. So similarly, the miraculous signs that Jesus did, it's not all about the miracles. It's about the thing that the miraculous signs point to, namely uh, Jesus' power uh, as the Son of Man over the dominion of the earth, or as it's worded here in verse 24, but, but, but that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So it's easy to make a mistake of confusing the sign with the thing signified. We must always look to what's being signified, specifically here, Jesus' power to forgive sins. Uh, another false faith comes up in uh, John 6, and uh, this is an example of occasions where people take it a step further, a step further into error, unfortunately, where seeing these miraculous signs, they say, oh, great, you know, here's come our conquering King Messiah. We're finally going to get what we want. And the situation here in John 6 is right after he has fed the 5,000, you can imagine how impressed people are with that. That is a heavy-duty miracle. And uh, they say, now is the time for us to have our justice against Rome. Here's the man who can lead us to this victory. But he didn't want to get confused with their nationalistic enterprises. So what did he do in that specific situation? He withdrew to the mountains for prayer again uh, to seek the, uh, his father's heart in what his ministry was. And this is a great lesson for us to remember. We should not fall into the trap of thinking, okay, now I'm spiritually well. Now I'm going to be more successful or more powerful. I'm going to get those positions, those duties, those things that I always wanted. Uh, it's not the way it necessarily works. It's easy to get sucked into other people's agendas and to uh, not be about kingdom building, but about uh, empire building, somebody else's empire. And uh, so uh, saving faith does not grasp after uh, somebody else's power or wrongly applied power. Uh, instead, it is patient, meek, and long-suffering. Those are difficult things to do. We may have feel this overwhelming power of victory. Oh, all of a sudden this burden of sin is released and now I'm ready to run. You point me in the right direction and I'm going to run. Well, it's easy to run off a cliff or somebody else's ramp or get sidetracked onto somebody else's power scheme. We have to remember that uh, God calls us to a specific task that's not always glorious. It uh, doesn't always get us fame and fortune, but uh, always brings us to uh, an ultimate blessed place at the end, uh, even if it is the path of suffering. Well, at the same time, we're supposed to be patient meek and long-suffering, uh, we're not supposed to be shy. And the situation in John 12 here uh, reminds us of um, the errors, the dangerous facets of a shy faith. And when I was first saved, I remember being a little embarrassed. And Well, it's embarrassing to tell you how I was embarrassed. Because I was um, on a Christian tour. I was a client, and I was embarrassed to wear the name tag that said American Christian Tours. I mean, I just come out of this group where like, the word Christian was just like, what kind of idiot would ever believe in that? So while uh, God had definitely done a convincing work in my life, I just didn't like wearing the name tag. <laughs> and the uh, verses here in John 12 are a perfect rebuke for the very immature behavior that I had. And I'll read to you uh, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men, more than the praise of God. So in this case, it appears they, they likely were true believers, albeit very weak and impotent believers, but they feared being put out of the synagogue. They feared all the social ramifications that would come along with it. They might lose their friends. They'd lose their jobs that were often 
positions of status connected to those relationships in the synagogue. Um, to some, the cost of discipleship is, is just too high. It's not a cost that they want to pay. But of course, if we take into consideration uh, eternal consequences uh, and live based on that perspective, we see the cost of the alternative of denying our Lord by being embarrassed about it is way higher. So a shy faith may still be true faith, but uh, it definitely is weak. Well, finally, as a negative example uh, of what faith is not, we come to James 2.19. Knowledge of God's existence, that is, that God is and that he is one, that he's monotheistic, uh, does get him, doesn't get the demons uh, anywhere. Knowledge often puffs up rather than humbles. Uh, It it often uh, makes us cower away from rather than cling to God. So just having that knowledge, even though it's accurate knowledge, it's factually correct, does not necessarily soften a heart and lead to that salvation work being done in the person. Um, In this past year, I've gained a a clearer picture of what it means for the shuddering faith or trembling faith is the word that James uses in 2.9 in watching our daughter. When, often when we discipline her, either with a little flick or a no, she just do this whole body shake. And I picture her as saying, but I really want to do that. Who are they to tell me that I can't you know, say this or do this or take this? And I think it's very similar to the, the demons who, as it were, shudder. They're having their desires, their motives foiled by this thing. In their case, it's God. In her daughter's case, it's her parents. Uh, external to them, not letting them get what they want. So just as she shudders, the demons shudder. Uh, while the demons are beyond redemption and sealed in their rebellion, uh, we must pray that that would not continue to be the case for any of our friends and neighbors, or certainly that no hardness of heart would grow in us. Uh, may God be so generous to grant to us and to our children repentance that we would not shiver in rebellion, but instead a crumble in humility at his mercy. That's the proper reaction. So in conclusion, uh, we see that we've contrasted true and saving faith. We've looked at the true faith of this formerly paralyzed man, and we've seen uh, that opposite various false faiths. And we need to be able to identify the two, again, to make sure that we ourselves are heading down the path of the true faith and that we are trying to start other people uh, down that path of the true faith. And uh, in wrapping this up, we'll uh, have your three Uh, critical examples, three principles that we can draw from this uh, beautiful story of the healed, fully healed paralytic. First, remember at the beginning of the account, we read that the power of God was present to heal. If God's power isn't present first, nothing is going to happen. Uh, We need to pray that God's power will be present in our own lives, not only to to heal us, to to continue to heal us, as it were, in our daily sanctification, but to be present in us to minister into the lives of those around us. We want our lives to be full of power, and the only real power is from God. So we need to be full of God's power. Second, uh, that God, having moved first, is not content with us just sitting by. It's not okay to be sitting on the bench thinking, I I got the right uniform, sweet, you know, let's go to the Super Bowl, and I'm along for the ride. That's not an okay uh, position to be in. Uh, the man and his friends in this story acted on their ardent faith. They took whatever it needed to get to Jesus, to have their hearing and to get their needs met. They climbed on the roof, they dug through it, they, you know, they dirtied their fingernails, uh, scratched up their hands, 
Uh, they rigged up a rope system, whatever it took to get those needs met. They recognized that need for help, for showing humility, and they acted on that need through great perseverance and tenacity. We too should be just as eager for Jesus' blessing in our lives, not content to get a little bit, not content to make a little bit of progress, but daily striving, longing, uh, just like these men did with great perseverance to not be dismayed, but instead pressing forward with just our hearts burning with eager anticipation and hope. And finally, uh, our hope is not in vain. Uh, these men walked forward or climbed up with a hope, and God is the one who fulfills hopes. When their right desires uh, gone about, approached, and carried out in the right way, uh, God rewards that. Uh, the power of God was present here to heal, and note it did heal. It wasn't just hanging around. It actually had an effect. So having healed, it overflows into our hearts and should pour out of our pores into the lives of those around us. Uh, if we're not seeing it happen, and I confess all too often I don't see it happening enough in my own life, it's because we're not pursuing it. It's because I'm not pursuing it uh, ardently enough. And this is a great example for us to be reminded here that true faith pours out. And it pours out into obedience. Remember how quickly the man, once healed, obeyed, and how thoroughly he obeyed, and how spontaneously he glorified God for that healing. May we too be quick to obey and quick to have God-glorifying words on our lips. Father in heaven, your scriptures are full of wonderful stories. Uh, We're reminded that these aren't just tales contrived to warm our hearts. They are true history, things that really did happen. You sent your son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And one day in the town of Capernaum, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus found one of those who was lost and he saved him. Uh, Through the power of God, he was fully healed. May your power be present here to heal us. May we have faith that is eager and persistent. May our sins be forgiven. May your authority be known, your omniscience respected, your commands immediately and thoroughly obeyed, and above all, your name glorified. This I ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.